If you are willing and able, please stand with me for the reading of scripture. John 18, 1 through 11. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus asked them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Almost exactly two years ago, my mom hurried to get a mammogram that she was delayed in getting. She walked through a nearly empty hospital as the rumors of a shutdown had begun looming. I remember my dad walking into my bedroom asking me to pray with him because for some reason, he had a terrible and unshakable feeling about my mom's results. One week later, on the second day of our quarantine, we got the call. She was positive for stage two breast cancer. I will never forget the feeling of immediate despair that filled my body and the unrelenting anxiety that settled into the pit of my stomach. The world was on pause. We were in strict isolation and I was going to be forced to sit idly by and watch my mom fight a battle that I couldn't fight for her. Nothing was in my control. But why do we ache for control? There's something innate in us that seems to yearn for it, right? If you're thinking, yes, your intuition is correct, it turns out our perception of agency is directly linked to our general well-being. Many psychologists suggest that human beings at a base level desire what is more or less understood to be perceived control. One study I read summarized the view this way. While theories behind each term have conceptual differences, they largely address the same underlying phenomenon and reach a common conclusion. The belief in one's ability to exert control over the environment and produce desired results is essential for an individual's general well-being. Put this way, it's in our biological wiring to seek and secure control over our environments, over others, and over ourselves. One study I read observed, opportunities for choice have been shown to create the illusion of control. For example, healthy individuals tend to overestimate their personal control and ability to achieve success in chance situations involving choice whereas depressed individuals are more accurate in judging the degree of personal control. When attempts to control events are unsuccessful, healthy individuals tend to rationalize outcomes rather than admit any compromise of personal control. 
So to summarize, our feelings of happiness and peace rely on how much control we feel that we have. And this desire isn't inherently a bad thing. Control keeps us engaged with our lives as we actively make choices. When we make good choices, we feel good. Decision-making provides purpose. It helps us feel invested in outcomes and motivates participation as active contributors to our relationships. However, if you've experienced anything in the last two years, you've probably been presented with the persistent reality that our sphere of control is very, very small. The pandemic has catalyzed a series of events that has created the never-ending sense that we are not in control of anything. I think most recently about Russia invading Ukraine and the new daily images of war that we're being presented with. The New York Times just did a little blurb on U.S. war veterans who are actually going to Ukraine to serve as soldiers and fight in the war. And this struck me as so interesting because even though on the surface each of their reasons for going were different, all of their answers could be boiled down to this need to do something because the anxiety of feeling helpless was just too overwhelming. We're all affected by the feeling of powerlessness. And we all seek to soothe that feeling in different ways. My mom, who is a trauma and attachment therapist, told me that when things feel out of control, we look to what can make us feel in control. And sometimes those things are good things, but more often than not, those things harm us. And for us as Christians, we usually refer to those things as idols. As Ian laid out for us last week, idolatry is the worship of something else other than God, and it's usually something that is the product of human creation. And while our idols aren't really embodied in physical statues anymore, we have not lost the human disposition to worship something other than God. We might not be sacrificing in temples, but our contemporary idols still require sacrifices from us. In order for us to get what we want from them, be it power, money, sex, you fill in the blank, we have to give up something in return. For example, we might begin incorrectly prioritizing work over our spouses or our children or friends to get a promotion or a bonus, and we begin neglecting our relational commitments. When we pick idols, we are picking what we believe will meet a need that we fear will not be met on its own. Choosing the gods who will give us what we want when we want it makes us feel in control. And we all know that one sacrifice is never enough for our idols. The nature of the relationship is purely transactional. So for us to continue receiving the soothing balm of perceived control, we must continue giving to our gods. Whether that be the continued sacrifice of our relational commitments our money to the next Instagram suggested ad, whatever it is, you can never satisfy an idol. And we become enticed by idolatry because it begins by asking so little of us. No one or very few people wake up and decide that day is the day they'll start heroin. Substance abuse begins with the feeling of anxiety and something as trivial as a weed pen. And this is why Ian's so right in identifying that idolatry is self-harm. Idols give us exactly one, what we want, when we want it, no matter what or who we have to sacrifice to get it, and despite our inability to responsibly steward it. 
Idols offer you immediate control to calm the anxiety you feel. But before you know it, you're drowning in debt with interest that is only growing, and you're trapped in a vicious cycle with no way out. Now, the person in me who grew up in cheesy Christian culture is just dying to say, guess who paid that debt for you? But in all serious, we all know this story. And you might be sitting there at this point thinking, thank you, Savannah, for just making me feel more anxious, telling me that I have no control over anything, and now I feel bad for all the ways I try to make myself feel better. But believe it or not, I say all of this not to hurt you, but actually to encourage you. Because while everything I've said up to this point is true, it's not the end of the story. Everything I've said without the unconditional love and grace of Jesus Christ will inevitably lead you to nihilism. But for those of us who follow Jesus and wherever you're at, please know that we're so glad that you're here. But Jesus invites us into a different way of life in which we sacrifice our need for control and give into the painful but beautiful process of formation that turns us into disciples of Jesus Christ who can receive his blessings and in turn share those blessings with the world. In this season of Lent, I've been reflecting a lot on Jesus's disciples and trying to imagine just what it would have been like. And I've just been really struck by Simon Peter. He was a man who's living a profoundly ordinary life and suddenly he's called by the son of God. I can't imagine being a fisherman and some stranger calls me to follow him and suddenly I'm watching blind people receive sight, the dead being raised back to life, and I'm walking on water. And I just find Peter so endearing because he loves Jesus so radically and he still fails so epically. This is the man who a few moments after Jesus looks at him and tells him that he will be the rock upon which the church is built. Peter looks at Jesus and denies his prophecy of his own death, and Jesus tells him to get behind me, Satan. I've been especially moved by the moment in today's text in which Peter is watching his worst fear come true. And in an attempt to seize control, he pulls out his sword and perpetuates violence against someone and while I've personally never cut off someone's ear, I do know intimately the desperation that motivates me to seize control no matter the cost. And in the midst of all of this, here is Christ, commanding Peter to put his sword away and submit himself to the will of the Father. This moment is so profound because here is Jesus, a non-anxious presence who is genuinely in control of everything. And yet he surrenders to the cup the Father has for him. For so many of us, and this is especially true for me, when I'm aching for control, the last thing I want to do is give up the little bit that I feel that I have. Especially to a God who seems to refuse to give me the one thing that I want most and that I think that I need. The sacrifice feels so great because God asks for my patience and my faithfulness, my trust and my steadfastness and my devotion and my love. But church, when God asks us to surrender, he's inviting us to a beautiful place of transformation in which he takes our anxiety and replaces it with peace, our desires, and fills us with contentment.
St. Augustine wrote, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. It's true that in this process, he asks all of us, but only because he desires to give us so much more than we can imagine and he loves us too much to give us those things before we're ready. The period of waiting that we go through and the tension that this creates is actually very formative, and our sacrifices play a role in transforming us into the people who can receive all that God wishes to give us. When we found out that my mom had cancer, everything in my body wanted to run headfirst into all of the things that gave me some semblance of control. But because of the pandemic, I couldn't. All I had was my crippling fear and a God who asked me to trust him. So that evening, I went up to my bedroom, got on my knees, and began to pray. I don't remember what I prayed or for how long. I do remember crying the whole time. And for the first two or three months, that was really all I could do. And in this process, what began in me as a terrified and quite honestly bitter petition to God was slowly transformed through prayer into a peace-filled heart that was completely reliant on the grace of God. Every diagnosis became a reason to praise, and every bad diagnosis became even more reason to pray. And as the months trudged on, I found that this process of prayer, while very little in my actual circumstances had changed, God was actually changing me and the very framework through which I was seeing things. I think Dallas Willard captures this experience so beautifully. He writes, when we are praying for or about things other than our own spiritual needs and growth, the effect of conversing with God cannot fail to have a pervasive and spiritually strengthening effect on all aspects of our personality. That conversation, when it is truly a conversation, makes an indelible impression on our minds and our consciousness of him remain vivid as we go our way. My mom is in remission now, which is something that I thank God for every day, but I'm facing another season of life in which I'm being asked to submit my anxiety and my wants and trust God's goodwill. And as much as I hate to admit it, I'm totally failing. Um, In complete honesty, there have been parts of this sermon that have been really painful to craft because just like Peter, I'm so prone to try to take things into my control. For me, I find myself constantly returning to the God of success. There's a part of me that believes if I just work hard enough, then it has to happen my way. And so I bury myself in impossible standards, late nights, and a godforsaken amount of coffee. And it's one of the reasons why I love Princeton so much. I mean, it's just a bunch of workaholics all trying to achieve something impossible by themselves. And it's fantastic. And I love it. But after a couple months of indulgence, the worship of this God has left me burnt out and is wreaking havoc on my relationship with Jesus. And I know many of you might share the same anxiety, but maybe you don't. Maybe you struggle with drinking a few too many glasses of wine after a hard day. Or you binge Netflix to step into somebody else's life because you're disappointed or anxious with your own. 
Maybe you're single or you're dating and you keep redrawing the boundary line because this desire is just so close to your heart and it's too vulnerable to entrust to God. Whatever it is, let me first say, there's no shame here. This community is one that roots for you. God only has love for you. And we're all here to support you. I'm going to invite the band up. But if anything struck you today, there's a prayer team who would absolutely love to pray with you for whatever it is you need. And then there's just a simple invitation for this week. Identifying what idols you worship to feel better. Where do you go to feel in control? And talk to God about it. Richard Foster, in his book on prayer, which I highly recommend, talks about what he calls the simple prayer. And it's just literally you talking to God with whatever you have. He writes, we do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength, where we can feast to our heart's delight. He invites us into the study of his wisdom, where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions we want. He invites us to the workshop of his creativity, where we can be co-laborers with him, working together to determine the outcome of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest, where new peace is found. It is also the place of deepest intimacy where we are known and we are known to the fullest. So no filtering. Come exactly as you are. And just tell God about what's giving you anxiety and where you want to run to. And I just want to clarify that when I talk about anxiety, I know that there are a lot of people who struggle with chronic anxiety. And please hear me. I'm not trying to simplify it down to something. It's just pray it away. And I do believe that God can heal all things. But here at Ecclesia, we also take mental health really seriously. So just know that wherever you're at, all of this is simply an invitation. I've recently been inspired by the book of Daniel. And I've been trying to pray three times a day. And it's going. Sometimes the most I have is 30 seconds. And my prayer is just literally one breath in which I acknowledge God. But I have been moved to my core at how much it changes my day when I take those moments. And it's just a simple prayer, bringing God into the fold of my day, into the forefront of my mind, and reminding my restless heart that he is good, he is good, he is good.